House of Representatives moving forward with an official impeachment inquiry. The president must be held accountable. No one is above the law. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California on KFOI Red Bluff Reading, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka, in Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO on Cottage Grove, KEPW in Eugene, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU, Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR, in New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV, in Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle, Washington, KODX, in Janesville, Wisconsin, on WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF, and coast-to-coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing the globe five days a week, usually hosted by Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com. But today, you got me again. I'm Nicole Sandler of The Nicole Sandler Show, which is based at NicoleSandler.com. So... In case you hadn't heard, this happened on Tuesday afternoon. This week, the president has admitted to asking the president of Ukraine to take actions which would benefit him politically. The actions of the Trump presidency revealed dishonorable fact of the president's betrayal of his oath of office, betrayal of our national security, and betrayal of the integrity of our elections. Therefore, today, I'm announcing the House of Representatives moving forward with an official impeachment inquiry. I'm directing our six committees to proceed with their investigations under that umbrella of impeachment inquiry. The president must be held accountable. No one is above the law. And Donald Trump is oh so surprised. So in a few minutes, we're going to check in with Ryan Grimm. He's the Washington bureau chief of The Intercept, and he's got a great piece about the mechanics behind the impeachment push and what led us to this point. But before we get to that, let me take a few minutes to try to bring you up to date on what has happened in the last day or two. All right. On Tuesday, as you just heard, Speaker Nancy Pelosi finally announced that the House would initiate impeachment proceedings against the president of the United States. Once the news broke about the whistleblower complaint and the details began emerging that Trump once again enlisted a foreign power's help to derail a political opponent, the floodgates opened and Democrats Even those who had been steadfastly opposed to impeachment came out in favor of holding Trump accountable. Donald Trump, of course, responded on Twitter within moments of Nancy Pelosi's announcement, calling it witch hunt garbage. But something else happened on Tuesday that should have garnered much more attention. 
Over in the Senate, Mitch McConnell has used pocket vetoes of virtually every bill the Democratic-led House has passed. They pass, for instance, a background check bill, among others. They send them to the Senate where Mitch McConnell sits on them and kills them. He refuses to bring them to the floor for a vote. But shockingly, the Senate on Tuesday unanimously passed a resolution calling for the whistleblower complaint to be released to the House and Senate Intelligence Committees. Now, it's just a non-binding resolution, but it is important to note that this required all 100 senators to agree, and no one objected. No Senate Republican was willing to block it. Mitch McConnell could have chosen to, but he didn't. Now, before the day ended on Tuesday, Donald Trump tweeted that he'd released the, quote, complete, fully declassified and unredacted transcript of my phone conversation with President Zelensky of Ukraine. Except that it wasn't. It wasn't a transcript. It certainly wasn't complete. It's a memorandum, a five-page memorandum of telephone conversation. And the memorandum notes that the call was 30 minutes long, from 9.03 to 9.33 a.m. on July 25th. Reading these five pages out loud takes around 11 minutes, meaning that there are 19 minutes missing. Also, on the first page of the report, it says, Caution! A memorandum of a telephone conversation is not a verbatim transcript of a discussion. The text in this document records the notes and recollections of Situation Room duty officers and NSC policy staff assigned to listen and memorialize the conversation in written form as the conversation takes place. So in no way, shape, or form is this a complete and fully declassified and unredacted transcript of a phone conversation. It just isn't. Then, on Tuesday night, I get a breaking news alert on my phone that reads, quote, White House preparing to release whistleblower complaint to Congress. And immediately I thought, why does the White House have any part to play in the release of the whistleblower complaint? The correct chain of custody, I guess, it goes from the whistleblower to the intelligence community's inspector general, who then does an investigation. And he did. And the investigation found that the complaint was credible and of urgent concern. So the law requires then that the inspector general turn the report over to the director of national intelligence, the DNI, who then shall, as written in the law, shall turn it over to Congress. Not only should the White House be excluded from this chain, but the president himself is the subject of the complaint, making it doubly so. I'm still waiting for an answer as to why the White House is anywhere near that original complaint or inspector general report. And now on Wednesday afternoon, I just read somewhere that the White House released a redacted version of the original whistleblower complaint. How? Why? This shouldn't be happening. So we get the memorandum of the telephone conversation, and it's damning. Despite the GOP talking points and what Trump is saying, there it really is explicit quid pro quo. It sure looks like felony bribery. Zelensky says, we are ready to continue to cooperate. And then he mentions, we're ready to buy more javelins from the United States for defense purposes, obviously. A weapon. To which Trump responds, I would like you to do us a favor, though. 
That, though, is linguistically the same as saying, well, if you do us a favor, or however, we'd like you to do us a favor. There's so much damning in this report that I hope everybody reads it. I will post a link to it at bradblog.com along with today's program. But things got weirder and weirder as the day went on on Wednesday. Trump and Ukraine's President Zelensky met at the U.N. and held a surreal joint press conference. Now, this was already scheduled before the news of the phone call came out. But still, other things that happened. The Republicans sent out their talking points for their members about how to respond to questions about Trump's call with Zelensky. But they emailed it to the Democrats by mistake and then sent out an email trying to recall their previous email. There are screenshots all over Twitter, just saying. And then came word that the acting DNI, McGuire, would release the whistleblower complaint to Congress at or by 4 p.m. Eastern. And indeed, we got notification that it had been received, and members of both the House and Senate Intelligence Committees were reviewing it in a skiff. And shortly after they started reviewing the whistleblower complaint, Trump stepped up to the podium at the U.N. for a press conference. He rambled on, kind of took a couple of questions, but didn't really answer them. Instead, he just threw out accusations about Joe Biden and his son. It was something to behold. I held off on producing this segment of the program, thinking that there might be some news made and I could include audio, but I will not assault your ears in that manner. Now, Thursday will be quite the day. At 9 a.m., Joseph McGuire, the acting director of national intelligence, will be on Capitol Hill testifying in an open setting. Now, on Wednesday, the Washington Post and others reported that McGuire threatened to quit if he wasn't permitted to openly and honestly answer the questions. But by late Wednesday afternoon, his attorney released a statement from McGuire that read, quote, At no time have I considered resigning my position since assuming this role on August 16th, 2019. I have never quit anything in my life, and I am not going to start now. I am committed to leading the intelligence community. Well, maybe you should get your president to officially nominate you. Just a thought. And one final note that, at the very least, deserves a phone call to not only your member of Congress, but Nancy Pelosi's office. The House is scheduled to leave this Friday afternoon for a two-week recess. The next day in session after this Friday would be October 15th. And sources now say the recess is not going to be canceled. Are you kidding me? Nancy Pelosi? Come on, man. Really? In just a moment, we'll speak with Ryan Grimm, Washington bureau chief of The Intercept, and find out how this all came together. I mean, after so long... It happened very quickly. That's next. I am Nicole Sandler, guest hosting today's edition of The Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com slash donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. 
We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, filling in for Brad and Desi while they deal with a family tragedy. Thanks for bearing with all of us during a very difficult time for Brad and his family. All right, now that we are finally on the road to impeaching this corrupt, sorry excuse for a president, it's useful to look back on the process that held it up for so long. Ryan Grimm did a great job of that at The Intercept in a piece headlined, Why the House Democratic Caucus was able to move so rapidly toward impeachment. Ryan Grimm is the Washington bureau chief for The Intercept and the author of the new book, We've Got People, from Jesse Jackson to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, The End of Big Money and the Rise of a Movement. Ryan Grimm, first of all, today I have a good feeling about the title of your book because it feels like we might be approaching the rise of this movement, finally. So everything changed on Tuesday when Nancy Pelosi finally made it official and said, we are officially opening an impeachment inquiry. You have a piece up at The Intercept that I'll link to from uh, bradblog.com, and it's titled, Why the House Democratic Caucus Was Able to Move So Rapidly Towards Impeachment. Are you trolling us with that headline? Well, <laughs> what I meant was so rapidly in the last few days. Right, because, uh, you know, right. many of us... Right, zero to 60. Right. Well, many of us would argue that an official impeachment inquiry is long overdue. So when yes. it did happen, it went from, what, they had like 130 yeah. signed on, and now mm-hmm. th- today, the last I checked, it's over 200. It's like 211 right. or something, yeah? Right. It's a matter of time until they creep, creep higher. There were a number of... Uh, you know, safe Democrats, you know, largely safe Democrats who uh, were willing to kind of uh, buck Pelosi. Um, and that got you over 100. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got, oh, you've got more than just over 100 people signed on to Medicare for All, for instance. Oh, okay. Um, but you don't have the same dam break or, or jailbreak, as they call it sometimes on Capitol Hill, um, which is a very telling metaphor. Um, that uh, you have with uh, that you had happen over the weekend with with impeachment, where it just exploded. But it really started the night before, when when a group of seven of these freshman Democrats who won in in red districts that Nancy Pelosi was ostensibly protecting by not coming out in favor of impeachment, um, mm-hmm. they came out. They wrote an op ed and said, "It's time. We got to do this." And it, did that open the floodgates? Yes, that was huge. The other metaphor, which I do like, the, the jailbreak, mm-hmm. is a useful one here because Pelosi was the warden here, oh, um, uh-huh. and that's how that's how that metaphor is constructed on Capitol Hill. That every, all the votes are locked up um, by the leadership, uh, but then if a few people get out, it, it triggers a jailbreak, and all of the inmates head for uh-huh. the tunnel or they head for the hole that's been blown in the wall of the prison, 
and the warden just completely loses control and people are just running through the fields uh, outside the prison. Um, and the reason that these seven people were so uh, significant is that they were the ones that were the loudest opponents right. of impeachment internally. So you have half the caucus that had not signed on for impeachment, but the overwhelming majority of those are just, hey, Nancy, you tell us what to do. Uh, you know, we're, they're happy to impeach. They're happy not to impeach, you know, whatever. Whereas of the, and, and if you narrow it down further to the 44 kind of frontline Democrats, these are people who the party considers to be most at risk in the next election okay. of those 44, you know, six of these seven were the loudest against impeachment. One of them, Jason Crow, mm -hmm. uh, had already come out for impeachment, but the other six, these were the ones that really annoying everybody in the caucus with their with with how strongly they were opposed to beginning impeachment proceedings because they weren't like look you do you you got to do it it's happening in your district they were like don't anybody ever talk about impeachment wow. ever because it's going to hurt us and then the for these people it, almost all of them there's still a handful that were not signed on to that jimmy panetta max rose um, a few others mm -hmm. but these were the most assertive folks to have them come out for impeachment at that point you're like well who's left to oppose it right and that's and why and that's why you saw the the jailbreak and there these were all national security types which brings in an extra dimension of the of the question sure well there and their change of heart actually came about uh, i i'm guessing with the uh, the the first inklings of the news we heard of this whistleblower report that was being held up by the acting dni who was supposed to turn it over to congress but decided to go against the rule of law and yeah. did not right and then it was like last Thursday, I think, when uh, one of the maybe the Washington Post said this seems to be stemming from a call to the president of Ukraine. And then the press, investigative reporters, people like you started piecing it all together and and looked, you know, what what phone calls were made to the leader of Ukraine. And they got basically the story of who the story behind the whistleblower complaint. And that's when the floodgates opened. Right. And when it became clear that it involved Ukraine and by extension, Russia, that's when kind of empire and the national security state starts to uh, trigger some of these national security uh, Democrats. Now, Ryan Grimm, you point out that the bigger issue in this piece at The Intercept, which I'm linking to from bradblog.com and, and nicolesandler.com, which is the divide that had been brewing within the Democratic caucus. I mean, we saw it from the outside. I know, for instance, as a host of a, a radio talk show, I've been screaming about the fact that those of us who went all in to give the House back to the under the control of the Democrats did it so that they'd perform oversight on this lawless administration. Mm -hmm. And the frustration was growing and, and escalating because of their perceived fecklessness. You write about Jamie Raskin, who's one of the true progressives in leadership in a meeting last week, who has been calling for impeachment and that he was echoing the sentiments of people like me, those of us who've been screaming on Twitter and into the <laughs> the blogosphere, that the Democrats need to do something already. These people, so the, the progressive activists, those of us who've been fighting, did have an effect 
on the Democratic caucus, right? I mean, this is something that that has been brewing. It was just, I guess, waiting for these vocal opponents of impeachment to get with the program. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. And what's interesting is that Raskin was voicing the concerns of upward of 200 rank and file Democrats Mm -hmm. who, you know, for the beginning of the congressional term were pointing their ire at the squad at Ilhan Omar, at Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Right. Like, these are the people that are causing problems for the Democratic Party. Um, and then it, it gradually began dawning on them that it was not um, overreaching. It was not radicalism that was that was causing them problems back home. It was passivity because all of these activists were who had been uh, so energetic in their, in their service uh, and against the Republicans were now channeling their rage at them uh, for not holding the the president accountable and not doing you know not not seeming to take advantage of of the gift that they had been given by activists of of the control of the House of of Representatives and the re- one function of that was a record number of primary challenges mm-hmm. more than 110 primary challenges has been filed and and dozens more uh, you know could be waiting in the wings and so. In order to protect these hand, small handful of frontliners who were most vocal, all of these members were starting to now realize that they were putting their own seats at risk. And, you know, it wasn't a lot of solace that their challengers didn't have a lot of money in the bank. Right. Um, because Ocasio-Cortez did not have much money in the bank. <laughs> exactly. And she is now representative Ocasio-Cortez. Right. And, 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 we, and we should point out, too, that Cherry Bustos, who heads up the DCCC, has done everything in her power, and then some, I would add, to discourage primary challenges, going as far as to say that any vendors or consultants mm-hmm. or advisors who work with a campaign primarying an incumbent will be blackballed from working with any Democratic Party official candidates going forward. So uh, I, that's very undemocratic, right. not that I need to point that out. Um, but this, these are the tactics that they were taking under Bustos's auspices in trying to tamp down the resistance, so to speak. Um, right. I guess it's not working since there are still so many primary challengers out there. Right. It, it actually probably backfired. Good, um, as it should. And, and so these uh, rank and file members, like, they started to realize okay, we're doing all this work, we're raising all of this money, we're doing all of this work, and we're moderating our message all to help. Uh, this handful of frontliners. Um, but actually, if I lose in a primary, the party doesn't care too much because I'm in a safe blue seat. Mm-hmm. And whoever beats me is going to come back and, you know, be a, be a Democrat. Right. So, you know, there's a dawning realization that there's nobody that, that's actually looking out for them. Um, they want to be in the majority, but in order to be in the majority, you also have to be a member of Congress. Uh, and so... They were very ripe um, to flip towards impeachment, so to satisfy the the anger back home, uh, and so when this clearly impeachable offense, you know, he, he's this is his four thousandth clearly impeachable offense, but this one landed at the at a, just an ideal time in the in the politics of the Democratic caucus, right. Exactly. Uh, we, we should point out that Chuck Schumer has also since gotten in on the act and decided that it not it's not only about uh, primary challengers, but if a 
if if a campaign decides to challenge the candidate that Chuck Schumer personally mm-hmm. decides should be the nominee, then you will also be blackballed. It's yep. astounding because we should remember that Chuck Schumer is the one who personally handpicked Kirsten Cinema, who has turned out to be the single worst Democratic senator, um, even surpassing Joe Manchin for that honor. So uh, it, just these undemocratic policies that the party is putting out there are uh, are pissing a lot of people off or you know what? I don't think I can say that on KPFK. Are angering a lot of people, and um, so I, I'm hoping that this sort of uh, progressive groundswell can fight back against this stuff too. I know the most important question right now is impeachment and getting Trump out of office, or at least holding him accountable. But um, these things we can't just let go unchallenged either. What's interesting, though, is that the success that the insurgent challengers had in driving um, the House Democrats to get tougher Mm -hmm. is actually probably going to hurt them now in their own challenges. Um, Because, you know, last week they had a very clear message. You know, my opponent uh, is afraid of Donald Trump. He won't, he won't support an impeachment inquiry. He's dragging his feet. Uh, We need somebody who's going to be tough and who's going to, um, you know, actually represent the people of this district in a strong way. That that was that's a clear message, and that was resonating with a lot of uh, voters. And the, the incumbents noticed that it was resonated, and now so now that so many of them are supporting impeachment, the challengers are left with, well, this is too little, too late. You know, they they, they showed their true colors. They mm-hmm. showed that in, in in the face of a crisis and an emergency, they they blinked. Right. And they had and they had to be pressured to do the right thing. And that's a fine argument to make, but it's not as clear cut as the as the first one. Sure. Sure. And so you, you to in order to uh, knock one of these incumbents off, you need everything to go right. Um, and so it does it does uh, paradoxically, you know, the success of the movement makes the, the ultimate success of the movement that much harder. But sure. that's how the system is designed. It, it gives just a little bit to try to fend off. Um, you know, true. You know, bigger demands, right? But primary challenges. I mean, that's the democratic way. Uh, it, uh, the the whole uh, prohibition against challenging an incumbent is astounding. The fact that the party is doubling down in support of Dan Lipinski in Illinois, the most um, pro uh, or anti-choice candidate or a member of the, the Democratic House Caucus. Uh, and he's got a great progressive challenger in Marie Newman. And thankfully, a lot of uh, incumbents are, are coming out in support of Marie Newman. I just don't understand why the party gets involved in primaries when they should, I think, stay neutral. But that's just me. If they were um, any good at it uh-uh. or doing it for a good purpose, uh-huh. um, that'd be one thing. And so actually think about it this way. A lot of people who support Bernie Sanders say that one of Bernie Sanders' theories of change is that you know he's going to push forward an aggressive uh, an aggressive agenda, and if there are corporate Democrats who stand in his way, he's going to support um, primary challenges against them and and pressure them. And in fact, FDR uh, did that in was it thirty eight um, when a, when a lot of or maybe it was thirty. 
you know, I think maybe 1938, mm-hmm. when a lot of um, Southern senators were, were Southern Democratic senators were standing in the way of his, his agenda. Um, he, he supported primary challenges to them all across the South. Uh, he lost badly, but he did it. Um, and it did pressure them. And, you know, it, it, it caused them some pain and probably ended up to his political advantage in the end, even though he lost. And people on the left would say, you know what, that's good. Like you need, like San, you know, a, a President Sanders or a President Warren should do that, um, should pressure members of Congress and should use um, the, the, the power of voters through a primary um, to do that. And so, you know, in form, that's all that centrist Democrats are doing, doing, you know, they're, so they're, they're just doing it um, in pursuit of a mission that progressives don't agree with, right. they're doing it in pursuit of corporate centrism. Um, so, so perhaps the idea, um, of the kind of, uh, power structure getting involved in primaries isn't it's in itself inherently wrong. Uh, it, it's more about, um, you know, what, what the, what the end goal is, because you don't want to, you know, if you're, if you're a, a movement, you don't want to leave any tools, um, kind of, uh, unused. Sure. Right. No, maybe but, I'm wrong. No, I, I I agree. I just think that's part. That's what the democracy is about, and the the party. But the, and they should be they should be honest about it. Exactly. Right. It, they're not honest about it. What no. they say is that they're just pragmatic, and that really they they just really want the most electable candidate to win. Uh, there's been political science research that's fascinating that shows that actually that that's just simply not true. Like they, you can prove that the establishment actually prefers moderate candidates, even even in the bluest districts, like they, they just ideologically prefer those, those, those moderates. And secondly, you know, if they were such good pragmatists, we wouldn't be living in the hellscape we are. Right. You know, uh, Ryan Grimm, you brought up Bernie Sanders and, um, uh, you know, I make no secret to my audience. I, I'm a big Bernie Sanders supporter, but I also support Elizabeth Warren. I've noticed, uh, and I'm sure you have as well, the, the ugliness in most notably on social media between Sanders supporters and uh, Elizabeth Warren and her supporters. Uh, frankly, in 2016, I fought back against the 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 concept of the Bernie bro uh, mm-hmm. because I I frankly didn't I didn't experience it. I didn't see it. I was a Bernie Sanders supporter, but I voiced my opinion that I think. Um, you know, uh, Bernie's got an uphill climb here. I still love him. He's still my number one choice. I just think. It, the DNC is is has a big responsibility for this. They damaged him. Um, the last election damaged him. Uh, politics damaged him. And I think he's got a much tougher climb than Elizabeth Warren, who seems to be mm-hmm. gaining momentum, right? And so I, I posted something on, I think, Facebook, and I said, if Bernie can't win— and, you know, I think the decks are stacked against him— I think we'd be well-served by Elizabeth Warren— Oh my God! You would have thought I hurled obscenities at somebody's mother the way for for what came back at me. The vitriol, the ugliness, it was palpable. And I know Bernie Sanders issued a statement at the beginning of the campaign that he doesn't want to go ugly. And in just the last few days, I know there was a more cryptic message sent out, basically telling people to chill out after attacks on the working families party after they endorsed Elizabeth Warren. Um, do you think, I look at it as we've got two, uh, two candidates that are progressive in nature. If you put their numbers together, they beat 
anyone else by a huge right. margin. Um, are progressives eating their own? Are we going to shoot, shoot right. ourselves in the foot? I mean, I, I think that people are going to twist um, online conversations um, to, f- to fit their agenda no matter, no matter what. Mm-hmm. You're always going to have some angry, vitriolic, anonymous people on, online. And, and, you know, in 2016, we, we saw foreign trolls, like, yep. you know, pump, you know, pumping, um, vitriol into these conversations to make some, to make them extra toxic. Um, and that what they want is, is for the, uh, the part, you know, the party to be fighting with itself. Um, they, they love the chaos and they love if it can turn into an, you know, an article and then, you know, kind of break out of the kind of troll Twitter world and right. get into the actual media. I think that to me, the, 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 the more concerning part is that there, there seems to be a real misunderstanding uh, among some vocal elements of, of Bernie supporters of, of who Elizabeth Warren is. Yeah. And, and a lot of, and I understand why that is. You know, a lot of people who support Sanders, Sanders famously has tons of support among young people. Mm-hmm. A lot of people kind of began focusing in a hyper way on politics in 2015 because they were inspired by the Sanders campaign. And and they should be proud of that. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, in some cases, it's, they were just turning 17 or 18 at that point. So why would they be following politics before that? Right. In other cases, uh Politics was miserable um, from like after the after 2010 when uh, Republicans won the House. Yep. What was what was the point of getting into politics? It was just debates over how much you're going to cut Social Security. Exactly. Um, and it, so it was all ugly. And then along comes uh, Bernie Sanders um, with an inspiring message, and here's Elizabeth Warren, uh, you know, who ends up not endorsing uh, Bernie Sanders, and and so I understand why they, people start out with this. Uh, this suspicion of, of Warren, um, but they should also think about how people who are a bit older than them, I'm 41, um, and who had been closely following uh, progressive politics and have been watching um, both Sanders and Warren uh, for years, have a different understanding mm-hmm. of, of Warren and, and and try to give a little bit of credit to that perspective and, and, and try to put themselves in a place um, where where they can at least see why why that why that might be, uh, it's it's too easy to just say you know what the some of the people who liked Warren now some of the people who liked Hillary Clinton now like Warren uh-huh. so therefore you know Warren and, and Hillary might be the same right. that that's that's not thinking about it, um, it w- with enough kind of intellectual flexibility what you have to understand is that Bernie Sanders has allowed has has basically created space for Elizabeth Warren that did not exist four or five years ago. Exactly. You know, the, yeah. the, the, the corporate group third way, okay. um, back in 2013, 2014, you know, had Elizabeth Warren as its poster child of the, the worst socialist lefty oh, yeah. pop policies that could ever, that could ever exist. Right. And she has not changed at all since then. But what has changed is that Sanders by driving the conversation further left and, and building this uh, grassroots movement has created uh, energy that's, that has frightened places like Third Way so much um, that they're willing to pretend that they're actually okay with, with Elizabeth Warren. 
Um, and so this is dynamic stuff. It's not, it's not just, uh, well, the same, some of the same people that liked Hillary now like Warren, so Warren must right. uh, suck. It's like, no, the, the, world has, the world has changed, and Bernie Sanders deserves an enormous amount of credit, and the, and the movement around him deserves a lot of credit. Absolutely. Um, but, but don't forget that the movement that he led <laughs> in 2015 was created by uh, Elizabeth Warren, in 2009 and 10, when she was the one who was um, taking on uh, Barack Obama um, and and Tim Geithner and Larry Summers uh, and and not San- not Sanders, and so that you know it's Bernie Sanders and, and the people that are very close to him understand that this is one fluid movement, um, and so it would be good if some of Sanders supporters would get it too. Would, would get some of that too. Absolutely, you know my my whole thing. I saw the criticism start when when Warren didn't endorse Sanders in the 2016 race. I looked at it differently. I saw her as the lone female in the Senate who stood up to the Clinton machine and said, I'm not going to endorse you. I'm going to remain neutral throughout the primary because I really like... She took a ton of heat for that, too. She took so much heat. The fact that she pushed back against the pressure coming from Clinton world, and it was huge, I thought earned her a great ton of respect. And And so she played the political game. She said, I'll endorse whoever the nominee is because it's so important that we beat Donald Trump. She played the yep. political game while still, I think, holding true to her progressive values. I think she's wonderful. I think we'd be well-served with her. Then again, if I could wave my magic wand, I'd, I'd make it a Sanders-Warren ticket and be done with it. And her, her argument, and I think, I think she was, in the end, in hindsight, wrong not, not to endorse yeah. Sanders. And I, I think she would probably actually privately agree I with that. I think so, too. Yeah. Um, but she had two arguments at the time. Um, one was, well, look, he's not going to win. Um, and so endorsing him is spending political capital that I could use, you know, for other pursuits. You know, in that assessment, she was joined at the time by Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. You know, Sanders at that time never thought he had a chance. It wasn't until right. maybe December, January that he started realizing the, that he that he actually had a chance. Um, but still, you know, Warren did Warren did not jump in, and that's true. But her so her argument was Hillary Clinton is going to win, and so I want. I want maximum leverage sure. to block her from sta- from staffing her White House mm-hmm. with nothing but but Wall Street stooges. And if you kind of compare, you know who for, who who Obama was stacking his White House with, and who Hillary Clinton was reported to have um, been been planning like kind of a year out to stock her White House with, two like final lists that leaked at the end. There was actually a dramatic shift, and 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 Elizabeth Warren's, you know, she said there will be nobody from BlackRock, there will be nobody from Goldman, there will be mm-hmm. nobody from City. You know, she had she was very uh, being very specific, and she was like, I have the votes to block these people. Um, here are people you should look at. So you know, if the if her list started out with you know almost all bankers, um, by the time she was getting close to the White House, there were it was about three quarters of of the people that she was, it was leaked that she was going to be hiring were, were, were pretty decent people, right, not, not, right. not the bank, not the mm-hmm. banker types. Mm. So, so Warren had been successful in pushing her, um, you know, in, in that direction. It doesn't mean that Hillary Clinton would have been some democratic socialist no. president, <laughs> no. uh, but you know, the ambitions were, were lower at that point. And then of course, 
Trump wins and all the music stops. Of course. And that that whole game looks silly. Right. Ryan Grimm, again, I want to just one last question based on, uh, again, the big news of the day, which is Donald Trump and the White House have released what they're calling a transcript. It's actually more of a readout. They caution in the notes that this is not an exact transcript. And so I won't even refer to it as that of the call with the president of Ukraine. There is that other issue, which is the backstory of Joe Biden, his son Hunter, mm-hmm. and Ukraine. And there's a great piece up at The Intercept by Robert Mackey to tell the backstory. Is there something there? Did Joe Biden do anything wrong here? It does look on the surface, even under the surface, really fishy that Hunter Biden, who had uh, seemingly no experience in the field, gets this, I guess, lobbying job mm-hmm. in Ukraine for $50,000 a month? What? It's more, it's more like a no-show job. Yeah. You, know, you, just sit, you just sit on a board and vote yes on uh-huh. everything and, and cash your $50,000 monthly <laughs> monthly check. It, you know, what, you know, depending on how corrupt it is, depends on where you draw the line. I think it was baseline corruption for mm-hmm. Biden, who's Hunter Biden, who's not qualified to have taken that position. He right. should have known better. Yep. He knew. He, of course, he knew. What does he know about Ukrainian natural gas? Get out of here. He, clearly, he's getting it because for decades he has traded off of his his last name. And then, secondly, did Joe Biden do anything that benefited this particular natural gas company that Hunter Biden was sitting on? The answer to that is no. Mm-hmm. The prosecutor that Biden got fired was actually protecting the natural gas company from corruption investigations around the world, particularly being let out of Britain. Mm-hmm. And so Vice President Biden getting the prosecutor fired actually hurts the company because now a prosecutor can come in who might actually start investigating the natural gas company. But did Vice President do anything wrong in not affirmatively distancing himself from his son's decision to take this corrupt job? Yes, I think he Mm -hmm. did. Like, I think we have too low a bar. Um, Our standards are too low for what we expect out of our our public officials. Like, it it is not too much to, to ask a politician to say that I don't want my children profiting off of my last name and any company that attempts to do so uh, will find that it will at best uh, be useless and at worst backfire. Um, And he has never said that. Instead, you know, he brought him with him on Air Force Two when he went to China where Hunter Biden was trying to, uh, you know, collect checks for some private equity venture that he was running. Uh, He didn't mind it when his son went to work for MBNA while while Biden was pushing through MBNA legislation to reform bankruptcy laws to help MBNA. Does this mean that Joe Biden's a bad person? No, but it means he didn't have the courage to stand up and say, I don't want my son doing this. Right. And these companies should not expect to get any benefit from it. And if you don't say that, and if the behavior continues for decades, it is entirely natural for Ukrainian oligarchs to assume that if they give Hunter Biden $300,000 in cash for nothing, that it will get them something. Yeah, right. And look, we criticize Trump for the, the gall of, of the Trump camp bitching about this when Ivanka Trump is getting all these patents from China as right. her father's prize is galling, but that's what they do. They're, they're grifters. Right, right. And they take the thing that they do and they... Go, and they try to find ways to project that of onto course. their opponents. Right. And, and Democrats keep giving them ways to do it. It's amazing. 
Absolutely amazing. Ryan Grimm, find him at The Intercept and do read the book because it is that good. We've got people from Jesse Jackson to AOC, The End of Big Money and the Rise of a Movement. It's a great book, really fast reading, and it's what we've been living for the last couple of years. So (laughs) you get dragged in and you you don't want to get out. (laughs) Ryan Grimm, thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate it. You can also find Ryan Grimm, of course, at theintercept.com and on Twitter at Ryan Grimm. Okay, well, the United States of America isn't the only insane place on the planet right now dealing with an erratic, unpopular, controversial, and in many ways unhinged leader. In a moment, we'll check in with Dennis Campbell, an author and journalist, an American expatriate who's lived in the UK for the last, I don't know, 12 or 13 years or so, and get his take on what is going on over there, because misery loves company. I'm Nicole Sandler, guest hosting today's edition of The Bradcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from The Green News Report and The Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence, because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Thunder calling through the faraway towns. Now war is declared and battle come down. You found it, the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler of NicoleSandler.com, home base of the Nicole Sandler Show, holding down the fort for Brad and Desi while they're out. Thank you for being with me. If you have a suggestion, a comment, some feedback, anything at all, you just want to get in touch with me, you can always find me at NicoleSandler.com. You can email me, Nicole, at NicoleSandler.com, or reach out to me on Twitter, at Nicole Sandler. See, it all works like that. Anyway, while we're gearing up to finally impeach our embarrassment of a president, the UK is trying to deal with its own buffoon, who happens to currently be their prime minister. The UK Supreme Court on Tuesday ruled that Boris Johnson's prorogation was illegal. In plainer English, they said Johnson lied to the Queen about his reasons for wanting to suspend Parliament. Therefore, Parliament was not closed. It was never closed. And it's now open. This court has already concluded that the Prime Minister's advice to Her Majesty was unlawful, void, and of no effect. This means that the order in council to which it led was also unlawful, void, and of no effect, and should be quashed. This means that when the Royal Commissioners walked into the House of Lords, it was as if they had walked in with a blank sheet of paper. The prorogation was also void and of no effect. Parliament has not been prorogued. This is the unanimous judgment of all 11 justices. And Parliament was open Wednesday morning. All right, so now we check in with our man across the pond. He's a journalist. He's an author. Uh, If you listen to my show regularly, you've heard him. Dennis Campbell, what is going on over there? I thought thought he was over here. I thought we had a monopoly on the crazy, but welcome to the party. Yeah, we, 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 we've got we've got quite a bit of the crazy going on right here. Um, you know, we've we've, of course, got Boris Johnson now safely back on the ground. <laughs> Better there than yeah. here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I guess the 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 interesting thing is this morning, Parliament came back into session at 1130. 
And uh, the Speaker Burkow has uh, tabled a number of urgent questions. Order! Uh, urgent! Order! Urgent! Yeah. Order! Order! <laughs> <laughs> and so the first person in the firing line was Jeffrey Cox, the Attorney General. Um, and this has become a bit of breaking news over here. Uh, told the, uh, the Attorney General told MPs in his statement that the government would comply with the Ben Act. That's the one that's intended to stop a no-deal Brexit on Halloween, the 31st mm -hmm. of October. Mm -hmm. However, Johnson, through advisors, still believes he can lawfully render the Ben Act null and void, presumably by sending a second letter that would dissuade the EU from granting a delay. Now, Lady Hale in the Supreme Court looks set to be back in action before the end of October at this time. But Robert Peston, who is the political editor of ITV here, said, you know, breaking news, important clarification from senior government source of what the attorney general meant when he said that Boris Johnson would abide by this act. It compels him in absence of a Brexit deal to write a letter to the EU requesting a Brexit delay. Government said we will comply with the Ben Act if and only if it's triggered, which it may not be if there's a deal. That's not the same as the PM will ask for a delay. How we comply with the Ben Act is the real question. And also what would be in our second letter? Huh. In other words, <laughs> adjudicating on another momentous dispute between the prime minister and parliament, he's basically going to put together something that – will absolutely be see, be so odious to the rest of the EU that even though they may grant a delay on the basis of the first letter, they're just not interested in anything he would have to say after that would <laughs> would just basically be very, very toxic. So <laughs> Now I thought I thought though that Boris Johnson was saying there would not be a delay, that deal or no deal, uh, he would make Brexit happen on October thirty first. Well, that's the thing he's trying to do. And, you know, basically the only way he can get that to happen is if we don't have a deal, asking for a delay in letter one and in letter two saying, and these are all the questions and conditions that we would put on a deal, which would basically make the push the EU's hand to say, well, you're not going to get a delay and poof, we're out. Wow. That's what he's counting. And now, now, I don't think the court's going to allow that. Now, again, just to back up, Dennis Campbell, Boris Johnson was elevated to the role of prime minister um, through parliamentary process. He was not put in office by the people, that's for sure, right? No, he was put in office by his party. The way yes. it works here is that the leader of the majority party, the party that has the most votes, but, and we'll talk about how he lost the majority two weeks ago, um, is automatically the new prime minister. So when Theresa May was first, first became prime minister after David Cameron, um, step down. It was because uh, she was elected leader and wasn't really elected because everybody else dropped out. So it was kind of like, uh, you know, anybody take a step forward and the whole squad steps back and there she is out in front. She became prime minister. She subsequently held a snap election in the hope that she would pick up enough seats that she wouldn't need her coalition partner, the Democratic Unionist Party up in Northern Ireland. Well, that worked terribly badly because it, she ended up losing seats and she had to go into coalition with them. And now the thought process is, okay, let's have another election, win a narrow majority, and then, you know, we can uh, continue to govern and do as we wish. But the problem is, is that when they were debating the Ben bill, the one we were just talking about at the top about putting restrictions on, this was called a triple whip <clears throat> vote. 
meaning if you're a member of the Tory party and you vote against the party, you're automatically kicked out of the party. So 21 very senior Tory um, people walked against and onto the other side to oh, pass the Ben right. bill, oh. and in so doing, were kicked out of the party. Wow. Wow. That was, we saw a video of that. That was pretty dramatic. Um, and, and a direct uh, rebuke of Boris Johnson. Um, oh, absolutely. He, he is absolutely. not well-liked either in Parliament or among uh, the people of the UK, from what I can tell. I mean, he's not well-liked over here, mostly because, uh, you know, he, he, <laughs> he tends to um, uh, be buddy-buddy with Donald Trump. Which is the problem? Oh, he's definitely he's definitely puckered up and has his lips firmly affixed fixed to his backside. There's no. Although, question. did you hear during their joint press availability yesterday, Johnson was asked a question by an American reporter, and Trump reprimanded the reporter from from Reuters, uh, saying yeah. it, it was a nasty question. And actually, Johnson um, came to the reporter's defense. That was an interesting moment. It was because, I mean, you know, again, he is the only one, but we're talking about Donald Trump now, who has branded the press the enemy of the people and a free press shouldn't be allowed, basically. Uh, Whereas when you start, you know, looking over here, if Boris were to defend either that behavior statement or action, uh, he would be facing even more trouble than he already is facing because our press is very free, very robust and very noisy. Right. Well, and, here, uh, let, let, let me play this exchange. So for anybody who didn't hear it, they'll know what we're talking about. This was from Tuesday at the United Nations. Question for Boris Johnson. President Johnson, some of your critics are saying that you should resign because you misled the Queen with regard to shutting Parliament down. How do you respond to that? Well, as I said earlier on, thank you very much. As I said earlier on, uh, let's be absolutely clear. Uh, We respect the judiciary in our country. We respect the the court. Uh, I, I disagree profoundly. Uh, with what they had to say. I think it was entirely right to uh, go ahead with a plan for a Queen's speech. This is a, 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 this is the longest period. We haven't had a Queen's speech for, uh, for 400 years. We've got a dynamic uh, domestic agenda we need to be getting on with. Uh, more police on the streets, investment in our national health service, uh, improving our education. We need to get on uh, with that. And frankly, I think we need to get on with Brexit. That's the overwhelming view of the British people. Uh, whether they voted to leave or, or remain, they want to get this thing done by October the 31st. And uh, that's what we're going to do. Mr. President. That was a very nasty question from what? a great American reporter. Was that, no, was, I, was that an American <laughs> reporter? An American reporter. Very nice. I, I, I think a good he, one. But I, I think he was asking a question, to be yeah. fair, that a lot of British reporters would have asked. <laughs> now, we, now that we have that out of I'll tell you, I know him well. He's not going anywhere. Don't no, worry yeah. about him. Uh, he's not going anywhere. He knows him very well, Dennis Campbell. He's not yeah. going anywhere. Is <laughs> Boris Johnson going anywhere? Well, that's the big question. I uh-huh. mean, at this point, you know, Boris has has got a number of scandals that are lining up. I mean, the urgent questions today all have to do with things that either Boris has done or things that have happened under his watch. I mean, the question after the the issue about the court and whether they would follow was about his friend Jennifer Curry, who runs something, a business called Hacker House. And a very close friend of Boris, and all of a sudden she got a 100,000 pound, that's about $150,000 grant, and no one can seem to find out if this was properly awarded or how. Oh, really? And (laughs) this is the the big Hacker House uh, uh, um, scandal that's going on at this point. And uh, Thomas, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Tom Watson, 
was uh, who's the deputy uh, shadow uh, PM for labor, uh, basically says that uh, he he could he could see he, he found it hard to see how the grant to Hacker House was justified because I mean the types of grants are for promoting technology inside the UK and Hacker House is a California company. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-huh. And its owner lives in the USA oh, and refuses goodness. to say how many employees it has in the UK or where Oy. they work. And then when he turned to Boris Johnson, Tom Watson said, the truth is our prime minister does reckless things. He's a man <laughs> whose character renders him unfit for the office he holds. So, I mean, it's it's been one of those kind of days already. And we're only two hours into session. Uh, Boris is expected to speak at around about four o'clock our time, which is about 11 o'clock Eastern time in the States. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's really interesting because there've been some good questions this morning. Like Oliver Letwin, who was one of the 21 MPs who lost that whip after rebelling over Brexit, has asked Cox, the attorney general, for assurance there'll be no further prorogation other than a short one ahead of the possible Queen's speech before the end of October. And he asked the attorney general to rule it out, but he doesn't do that. So there's a potential gap here for the government. You know, you prorogue Parliament again on the 10th of October. Queen gives her speech on the 14th. It falls. The government falls. General election. And you have the election right after Brexit Day. So there's still all kinds of intrigue going on as to what types of tricks are the Tories, the Conservatives, trying to play to push this. But the the big issue, of course, is is Lady Hale's uh, Supreme Court uh, victory. And the funny thing is they're all talking about um, her her brooch that she wears, huh. which was which was in the form of a spider. Yes. And I, that, I, I reminded right? one of the Guardian reporters today that, well, you know, that's very much like Madeleine Albright. You know, remember when she wore the wasp brooch Ooh. designed to sting when she was meeting with Arafat and others <laughs> in the Middle East who were acting up. Uh-huh. So. Lots of interesting things there. Lots of interesting things. Um, uh, if you had to pull out a crystal ball, Dennis Campbell, and predict yeah. what was going to happen, what would you say? I say buy popcorn stock. Uh huh. In both places, the, yeah. Yeah, in, it, there's going to be a lot of it popped, and and a lot of people sitting in front of their television sets or, or monitors or devices, just shoveling it in as you watch all this unfold because. You know, I'm I'm waiting now. We're about an hour and a quarter away from uh, when we when we were recording this from the, the the speech by Boris, and he could do any one of a number of things. I mean, he could even resign. Well, he won't which resign. Would be interesting. <laughs> well, we're we're on a global world watch. <laughs> the insanity in both the UK and the US. Dennis Campbell, uh, author and broadcaster and journalist. Thank you for your input. Uh, we'll be checking back in with you over the course of the next few weeks as things progress. Oh, glad to help out. It's uh, it's going to be very interesting times. What is it? What is it? The Chinese curse. May you live in interesting, interesting times. times. We, are there. we certainly are there. <laughs> All right, Dennis Campbell. Thank you. Thank you. Find him on Twitter at Client Loyalty DC. And with that, we're come to the end of another edition of the broadcast. Obviously, there's so much going on. I'll do my best to bring it to you as much as we can fit into an hour anyway. I'll be back again tomorrow when I'll be joined by David Dayan, now of the American Prospect magazine, where they have a series running on what a new president could do in his first day in office without having to pass any legislation or even use an executive order. It's a pretty hefty list. So until next time, I'm Nicole Sandler, in for Brad Friedman, echoing Brad when I say, good luck, world. <laughs>